I am so glad you could join us. I'm your host, Mo Gaudat. This podcast is nothing more than a conversation between two good friends sharing inspiring life stories and perhaps some nuggets of wisdom along the way. This is your invitation to slow down with us. Welcome to Slow Mo. Welcome back. Thank you very much for joining me. Uh, today's conversation is one that I have prepared for, I guess, for probably a year and a half. I, but the first time I got in touch with today's guest was almost two years ago. Then we met for a coffee in, in London when I was there around a year ago. And she told me her story and I was immediately asking her to be a guest on Slow Mo. Maya Rachura is a a leading expert in visualization in the United Kingdom. She is the founder of a company called Remap, uh, which basically is her avenue to deliver on her own personal mission, which is to help people around the world use visualization to live a better life, whether mentally or love life or professional life or health and well-being, which sounded a little bit like, oh, is that even possible? Are you one more of those healers? When Maya told me her story, I felt that she had enough credentials to actually say that this stuff works. It has worked incredibly well for her. But at the same time, she uses a very scientific approach to explaining how this works. So while I normally think of those things as woo-woo, I believe that today you will see that this one isn't so woo after all. Maya has been so kind and gracious because we've been attempting to organize this conversation for almost a year, as I said, and eventually we managed to organize it around a week ago, and then I had a construction site on top of my apartment. Then I went, I ran upstairs and asked them to, to stop, and when they will stop, they said they will stop today, but then today they still were working. So I had to ask Maya to move it until after working hours. And she, she so kindly did that. Then I had a few technical issues and, <laughs> and I, you know, I kept jumping into hoops uh, to make this happen. And I say that with a lot of, um, of joy because I know that anything that starts difficult normally ends up with a lot of joy. Uh, you know, life comes with a, a balanced amount of hardship and, uh, and ease. And so, I think I got the hardship out of the way, and it's now finally time to enjoy my conversation uh, with Maya Ruchura. Maya, thank you so much for being my guest today. Oh my gosh, it's my it's my pleasure. I'm really excited, and I think the journey has been great. So it's all part of it, and yeah, I'm really excited for our conversation today. Thank you. So Maya, let's start with this visualization thing. Visualization, interestingly, has been a big part of my life in the last two and a half months. I've been I've been sort of forced by life to be grounded. It's funny, but it doesn't matter what you're doing in life. If you're a Middle Eastern, uh, lots of countries will give you a lot of trouble traveling. And so I've been at my new home here in Dubai for two months in a row, which actually has never happened to me in the last 15, 20 years. But it's been a very interesting opportunity for me to look at my life not backwards, but forwards and say, what do I want my life to look like in five years and 10 years and so on? And I think visualization is a big part of this. But you believe that this approach to visualization actually creates the realities that you want in your life. Now, tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, so 
well, I think it's a it's a great kind of introductory question because if I'm honest, there is a lot of talk in society about, oh, you think something and then it just happens in life. Mm-hmm. I think it's really important to understand why that kind of narrative has come. So visualization is that process where you are creating images, environments and feelings in your mind and body before they've happened. And so what this does in the process is you are neurologically training your mind. And whether that means that, you know, you're putting that towards, yes, being healthier or seeing, let's say, that that vision for your future that you really want. It's that thing of you have to win it in your mind before you can win it in reality. And so if you can create it in your mind beforehand, you can maybe rehearse it, you can see what that looks like, then you're more likely to go out there in life and either find those opportunities or have that motivation and that energy to to go and make it happen. It's not so much that, oh, if you think something, that's definitely going to be what it is. It's more that you can use this technique to really train your mind and use it to your advantage. Because you know, how many of us live our lives letting our minds control us? And this gives you that chance to say, no, I'm going to control it. And I'm going to allow that training to basically help me create the future that I want and deserve. And that's super important in the whole process. So is this a bit like what manifestation is all about? Is it a spiritual practice? Is it the secret of the universe, as the very famous book puts it? Or is it more scientific? Is it something that is actually used in practical examples of people winning? Yeah, I actually get this a lot. So visualization is not a new technique. And it has been around for decades. And it actually comes from the sports world. So if you look at any Olympian or elite athlete, they will uh, really, really put forward how much they use visualization. You take Michael Phelps, you take Ronaldo, Roger Federer. If you listen to their interviews, they always say nearly like 80% of their training is that mental training. And the reason for this is because your brain really struggles to know the difference between what is real and what is imagined. So athletes for so long have used this to essentially level up their performance, level up their well-being. How can they show up in their games, in their matches and win it and succeed? And there's a really famous interview where Michael Phelps basically says he's like, I, you know, I visualized everything happening, even like my goggles falling off or someone beating me. And it was like, what do I do in that situation? And because he had mentally rehearsed all those scenarios, knowing that if his goggles came off, this is what he would do. Then when it came to it, all the mental energy needed to make that decision had gone. He knew exactly what to do. His body and mind had been there before. So he was able to really rise up in that situation and then went on to win. And there are countless examples of this, countless. And so it's a really powerful way, essentially, to train the mind and body into winning, performing how you want to, but also showing up and feeling good. And, you know, a very simple example of this is, let's say, presenting or pitching you know how many of us walk on stage and we're so nervous we we think of the worst possible thing that's going to happen like I'm going to go blank or people are going to laugh at me all of that but what if we could use visualization to retrain that so you can mentally rehearse okay this is how I want to show up on stage this is how I feel confident this is what my mind and body needs then when you go and do it you're in flow state And it's such a different way that you can then perform and be there. 
So is this a bit like preparation? Is it like, okay, I'm going to have a conversation with Maya. Let's think of my first seven questions and then say them in my mind over and over. Is, is it the same or is it any different? So I guess that's the most kind of like basic sense in the way that, you know, all of us do visualize on a daily basis, you know, sometimes when you're running through something. But the point of this one is that you are doing it more consciously. So I combine this with a bit of meditation and and breath work so that you are tapping in more to your subconscious. And the cool thing about visualization is you've got process visualization and outcome visualization. So process is like what you just mentioned. You can rehearse things. And this is what athletes do very well. So even if it's as simple as waking up and rehearsing what you need to do in the day, your tasks, your goals, you're more likely to be more productive, more motivated and essentially get it done. But then you've got the outcome visualization. And this is what you had touched on. It's like, how do we think about our lives? How do we think about what we actually want? You know, and I, I actually find it quite surprising that when I ask people or I'm talking to people, when you ask them, so what do you want in life? No, no one really knows. We get, we get stuck because we rarely actually think about it. And on top of that, it's who do you want to be? Like, how do you want to feel in your life? And it gets people really muddled because they're like, I don't know, I've just been on autopilot all the time. Yeah. Yeah. And so outcome visualization is a great way for you to start creating, I guess, what you want in your future. And, you know, this is exactly what I did in my own life and my own experience. And being able to basically visualize your goals, see what you want to go for, see those desires, and then understanding, okay, but how am I going to get there? And using the end in mind to keep you motivated, to keep you inspired, and to give you that, I guess, energy in life, you know, because life's too short to not do the things that make you feel alive and just give you that buzz. And so you can apply the technique in many different ways. So yes, it can be a preparation tool. It can be a great tool for goal setting and goal achieving. It can be an incredible tool for for your health. You know, the amount of studies they've done with visualization in pain, in stroke victims, in cancer patients, it's, it's amazing to see that because your brain is always struggling to know what's real and not, that you can kind of start manipulating it, you know, and use it to to help heal the body, to help heal the mind. And it's the, the benefits are just endless. That's incredible. You, you mentioned that your personal experience, you've used that technique. And I know it's, it's difficult to recall those times, but would you mind sharing with our listeners what you went through? Yeah, of course. And I do this simply because, yeah, if it can, if it can help someone else, then that's, you know, that's all that matters. But so when I was um, 15, I was diagnosed with ulcerative colitis, which is an irritable bowel disease. Now, some people, you know, I'm sure a lot of people have IBS or some, you know, gut related issues. It's very common. Um, but colitis is, it's incurable and it is one of the most painful conditions in the world. Um, and so obviously at quite a young age, I was in and out of hospital a lot um, on very, very heavy medication. So a lot of steroids, a lot of immunosuppressants. But I think the thing that is so like hard to even like conceptualize is, is the pain. The pain and the symptoms that happened were like crippling. And I have no idea if this is too much information, but, you know, I was going to the loo like maybe 30 times a day and and it's just pure like agony because essentially it's your colon being inflamed 
And this meant that then you can't really walk, you can't scream or cry or um, eat, let alone just do those like basic everyday activities that all of us, we just take for granted in every way. Um, and this, the hard thing was, is like either being on the like highest levels of morphine or, you know, the strongest medication they could ever give me. It was, it was just a dead end. It was constantly, I'm sorry, like you're going to be sick your whole life or you sadly don't get to live that future that like, you know, every other student or 15, 16 year old was excited to do. You know, I was fighting for my life at this point. And it got to a point then when um, there was actually no option. Um, I was presented this, this, I guess, chance to have this surgery, which you, you take out your colon and you basically have like a stoma bag, which, you know, a lot of people do. And it's, it's great. I was 17 at the time. And I just, it's like my life hadn't even started yet. And so many doctors were telling me that, well, it's ended. Um, and, you know, I, I traveled around the world to find the best doctors, India, France, America, to learn like, OK, is there any other option? And it just it. Yeah, it really broke me as a human, because I think every part of it. Makes you feel so inhuman to the point, you know, like and I'll be totally honest, I don't really share this part of it ever, but you know, I'd be walking down the street and have like an accident because it's like you're a baby again, you know, you can't control just like your body or, and it was so painful that you genuinely can't like stop somewhere. It's, it's harrowing to think that was my every day. And that was for like six, seven years. And then on top of that, you've got a lot of shame because I didn't really tell anyone. I was a girl at 16, like these sort of things are embarrassing to talk about. No one in society really talks about it. It's quite taboo still. And so you then have that lonely aspect of it. And obviously this is a very long story short, but essentially what happened is one day I was in hospital and this nurse basically asked me a question. She said like, well, if you weren't in hospital, where would you be? And um, I actually think it was quite a rude question at the time because I was clearly in hospital, but I had nothing to lose. And so I remember this so clearly, like shutting down my eyes. And at this point, I hadn't really walked for very, you know, for maybe like a week or two. And I just started in my head rehearsing like one foot at a time in the hospital hallway, um, seeing other people. Then it started to be like me going outside walking or like going home and, you know, seeing my friends. And I kept basically building this hope for my life again. And what I then started to do was realize, OK, this is making me feel a tiny bit better. Why don't I try and use it for my pain, my symptoms right now? And because it was just this constant, like, ugh, the only way to describe it is, I don't know, like piranhas, like just eating at you the whole time. I used visualization in a very creative way where I actually went inside my body, like I knew what my colon looked like. And I would imagine like soldiers and things like that, like killing all the cells and putting really calming stuff in my body. And it's only now I realize that, you know, there's so much research behind this. But at the time, I was just following it because it was making me feel better. And even if my pain was reducing just a percent each day, each day, I kept going, I kept going. 
And, you know, after a few weeks, I was up walking, I was going to, you know, I was out of hospital, I then ended up having this year at home where I just dedicated everything to learning about the mind, the body, the disease, and how we can train our minds to really overcome things like this. Um, and so, yeah, then that's basically how I left and I continued then for like eight years. And now it's just gone on to nine years where I visualized every single day. I have continued to train the mind. I then, you know, got to go to uni, started the, the company, and now I'm basically just on this mission to help others take control of their mind, their body, and understand that actually you don't need a chronic illness to have to do this. Your mental fitness is just as important as physical fitness. We all go for walks, we go to the gym. Training your mind can not only prevent things like this, but can also, you know, save your life like it did It did mine. Um, and yeah, that's kind of a little bit of a, an intro into my story. <laughs> wow. So I, I have to say that question, I got goosebumps when I heard it. It does sound rude when you're lying on a hospital bed, but it's so full of hope, isn't it? It's such an interesting way of saying, think about something else, isn't it? You know, think about what life could be like or would be like if you were to somehow manage to get yourself out of here. I don't know, I, I understand how rude that question is, but at the same time, I see how much hope almost naivete in terms of like, you'll be fine kind of view of it. It's, it's an interesting way of looking at life. Yeah, I think in life we do have two choices always. You know, it can always be, yeah, but Maya, what if you get worse? What if you get worse? But what if I got better? And I think it goes beyond that though, to think of like, and I know you've spoken about this as well, that when we're born, we have these beliefs, right, from our parents are you know our, the media the environment and most often all of us are suffering with the belief of I'm not good enough I'm not worth it I can't do this that is where our brains love to go it's it's familiar and and actually we're very good at subconsciously just always thinking that and I think it obviously took me that experience to be like actually how powerful are our beliefs? How powerful can our minds actually be? And I'm not here to say that, you know, this is a cure or things like that. And actually, I appreciate that the kind of like the hope and the motivation played a big part. But I guess after leaving hospital and, you know, diving into the science of it, I realised that actually it comes down to neuroplasticity, right? It comes down to us creating those new pathways in our brain that we can then, if we go on those and we, you know, start firing new thoughts, new beliefs, new patterns, you really do start to change how you think, how you feel. And, and even like, you know, if I look at, let's say how they use it in stroke victims, half their brain is completely not working. And yet by helping the patients use visualization, they're able to help the, the body start moving again. And this is, you know, they've seen this in multiple experiments. And I think it's, it's a really interesting, I guess, area, whether some people see it as placebo or not, you know, there's still so much science there. But we've got to see that actually, if our beliefs can have so much of an impact on our own progress, our own recovery, our own health, surely this is something we have to investigate. 
And I always sometimes think, okay, but my maybe maybe you're just a one-off, you know, maybe great is people get these spontaneous recoveries. But after seeing now the people I'm working with, or even how it keeps me healthy every single day, like it's, you know, I'm now on no medication. I'm living a life that people are telling me is impossible with this disease. To me, yes, yeah, some people may see this as a one-off. I see this as actually, this is amazing. This is science and others need to use this. Um, and so, yeah, I think we always have the power to ask ourselves the right question, give ourselves the right belief. And yeah, we do have the power to change that. And, you know, neuroscientifically, for so long, I think we were told that our brains, when we get to 18, stay as they are. But actually, our brains are so malleable. They can change physically, but also then how we see that in our daily Absolutely. lives. Yeah. Um, and I'm not going to lie, I think training the, the mind is the coolest thing anyone can do. I think it's so, it's just so fun and it's so cool. Like you're literally changing like this part of you that you then see that change in your life. Um, so I think it's, yeah, people think it's like a chore, but I'm like, this is so exciting. Like how, how are more people not doing this? So yeah. Does it work both ways, Maya? I mean, there was that very famous scientific record uh, or medical record about the three sisters, if you know of that. So basically three sisters that were told by some sage or something that they will each die when they are 17 on their birth date. And basically one after the other would just leave with no symptoms whatsoever but basically on their birthday, they would die. And it's a very old paper, I think in the 1800s, that basically says that they were convinced that they will go so much that their brains basically issued instructions, okay, it's time to go. Does visualization work both ways? Yeah, and, and you know, it's a fascinating paper because think of it like that, it's the stories we tell ourselves that we convince ourselves of on a daily basis. And the way I love to think about the mind is like um, like a huge city, you know, and it's got loads of different roads. And every day we get to choose those roads that we're driving on. And if someone has told you from a young age, okay, like this is when you are going to die, imagine like you're telling yourself that story every single day. Your body, your body hears it, your cells hear it, like they're so connected. And it's interesting you ask that because there's a um, technique called negative visualization where some people will use negative visualization to see the worst case scenario. And that is then what motivates them to like change it. Now, I don't recommend negative visualization to a lot of people because you have to have either, either tried the technique enough times to know how to control that. But what it does show is that you can train your brain in that way then. You may, a really good example is... Um, let's say every time you go on stage, you've had this experience where you break down and like, you know, it just all goes wrong. That experience will become that memory in your brain. And if now every time you get asked, oh, do this presentation or do this speech, you always will go over that and you'll think, oh, every time I do this, it's going to happen again and again and again. And it does. It does because, you know, you've convinced yourself. And then when you show up, it's more likely to happen like that. But that's where we have, I guess, that power to change it and be like, okay, so how else can we use this, this visualization technique to start helping us, start making us feel better or making us present better? So yeah, I mean, it's kind of scary to think how powerful it really is. And that's why I think it's really crucial for you know, everyone to learn 
Well, how can you use it to help you rather than hinder you? Because it really could, right? And we see it in everything, you know, in society and you take people going to work or what it might, maybe they're a parent and they just don't feel good enough. They don't feel smart enough. They don't feel ready. And that means we then limit our potential. We limit who we can be. We limit what we can do. And then we get to a point in our life where we then regret it, I guess. And so, yeah, really seeing it as an empowering tool that can help you level up and rise up is the way I see it. So the way I hear you talking about this does not include controlling the external world. So it's not like I can visualize that a million dollars are going to drop on my head. And you're basically saying I'm visualizing either the process of me doing something so perfectly or the outcome of me doing it so perfectly. Does your technique also talk about affecting the external world? No. So I, I think I've heard that story as well, you know, where is it Jim Carrey? He's like, you know, I visualized $1 million and then I got it kind of thing. And and I get it. I get the sentiment of it. But ultimately, like, look, we, we can't control the external world like that. But where I take it back to is the basics. You can control how you think, how you feel and how you act. And and we can't even control anyone else's emotions or thoughts, anything. Just bring it back to what you can control. And I think the the kind of distinction I'm going to make is through visualizing and through learning about what you want, your goals, seeing yourself, you know, that process of, let's say, preparing. It's not that the external world changes, but your relationship with it changes. How you view it changes. The you opportunities you maybe go for, or the opportunities that you see, or perhaps even like your, your likes and dislikes, that's what starts to change. It's not so much that, okay, like, you know, if I think that there are no earthquakes in this world, that's going to happen. No, it's not like that. It's this idea that your relationship, your purpose, your impact on this world that's what you start to change because it has to it always starts from us it starts from how we view it our interpretation and our attitude towards it and that's what I've really seen is like a byproduct I guess of me now visualizing for for over nine years has been that resilience it's been that kind of like confidence in this world um and it's been seeing that clarity and peace and those opportunities that I never normally would have and that's something I didn't really realize would come out from it. But you're developing that that mindset the entire time, which is just a byproduct. So yeah, I, I think it's not about, yeah, it's not about it's not about the world changing. It's about your place in that world changing. That's how I see it. I love, love how you said this. So th there's a lot of accountability in that statement, which I'm, by the way, I'm, I'm a, a huge advocate of prayer and manifestation and so on. I actually analyze them from a very scientific point of view. And I tend to believe that there is truth to the fact that if you can actually observe something, it exists, right? But I think that that leads to a bit of resignation, if you, if you know what I mean. Some people will say, okay, so I don't have to interact with life, life is gonna come to me. I, I think the most, the most common one, which I say with a lot of love and respect for my listeners, is how the feminine belief of love and romance is, no, I'll just sit here, he's gonna show up, right? No, that doesn't work that way. You know, the feminine is all about being, I'm going to stay here and everything will happen. The masculine is all about doing, I need to engage and get things to happen. And I think a balance of both really is how things end up happening. You know, if you put yourself in a closed room and never go out, 
it's just going to be a little less likely. It's going to be a little more difficult for him to show up because, you know, there are doors locked on the way. So, you know, we might as well just, yes, visualize and manifest and pray, but at the same time, go out and do what needs to be done. And, and I think the way you capture that is saying it changes your attitude towards the world. I think that's a beautiful way of describing it. Yeah. And, and you raise a really good point. I think it's that equation of visualization plus action. That's where the magic really starts to happen. Because like I said, win, win in your mind first and then win in reality. And I think it's that thing of, you know, for me, manifestation is this idea that if you bring up something in your mind, you can make it a reality. That's how I see it. It's this, it's this like opportunity, this, that seed that's there. And then it comes down to, yeah, you've got to take some action. But you know what I find really interesting is um, through, I guess, that visualization process, especially outcome visualization, you see people gain this type of like fire. It's like this motivation that really comes from within them. And it means that then when they want to take action, they love it. They see it in places that like, I guess, normally we wouldn't. And you start being proactive with that action rather than, I guess, yeah, like you said, just sitting and, and not doing anything. And it's funny because <laughs> this really shows the strength of it. But there's this uh, study where they show, they take two groups of people. One group goes to the gym and they they basically train their muscles. And, um, you know, like we normally do, we we lift weights, all of that. And the other group, they don't actually go to the gym, but they but they use visualization to to basically like see themselves there, see what their their, their body movements is, all of it. And what is pretty mental in this study is that obviously, you know, the people who actually went to the gym, their muscle increased and, and you know, improved by about 35%. And the ones who visualized, theirs was around about 18%. Now, I know that's not like the same, but when you think about it, these people haven't even gone to the gym yet and you've already been able to have such an impact on your body. So imagine when you combine that mental preparation, that mental exercise, that mental rehearsal with a physical thing, whether it's going to the gym, whether it's learning a new skill, a language, or, you know, like I say, a presentation, or maybe it's a health thing. Like, this is amazing. And, and something I used it with was um, traveling. I, you know, because I used to have a lot of accidents on the train or... Uh, would be really nervous about if there was a toilet nearby my parents would always be like well why don't you just keep doing it try it out and like you know the more you get used to it true but gosh was that a hard thing right you're just always putting yourself in that situation whereas when I started using visualization to see myself on that journey and I did it in both ways one okay if an accident ha did happen how are you going to respond, Maya? And it was like, you know, you can handle anything, that bravery, but then also seeing the journey, how I wanted it to be. And what I realized is combining that practice then with actually going out on the train was like, it just accelerated the whole process for me. And now I love it. I'm like, go on three hour journeys, take me. Like, I, I think it's great. So you can really see then how you can apply it to just the smallest of things, but also the largest of goals and experiences in your life. That is incredible, really. I mean, in a very interesting way, when you were talking about the gym and the 18%, I was like, I'll take that. You know, I, I, I'm happy with that. In a more interesting way, I was like, I, it's, I think the challenge with my life recently is I've been visualizing, visualizing the cookie with my coffee in the morning a lot more than 
than visualizing. I love that. I mean, who doesn't do that? Sometimes people take it too far and like, I'll be like, I'll say something and they're like, just visualize it. I'm like, it doesn't work that well. You've got to like, you know, you've got to apply it in the right way. But yeah, I think it's that thing. What are we going to focus on? Yeah, yeah. So Maya, let's go to technique. I mean, in a way, let me just take an example. I'm, I'm thinking, especially after the last couple of months, that there must be an incredible way for me to spread my message even further without having to travel that much, right? I mean, our conversation today is actually part of that experiment. You're, you're filming on your side in the UK. I'm filming on my side in uh, Dubai in an attempt to make this a high-quality production still, but without having me shuttling around the world all the time to bring this to my listeners. So, so you said we can visualize the process and we can visualize the outcome. Guide me through this a little bit. Yeah, so, so take, for example, where you're at at the moment. You have a vision for your company, for your impact. You know the sort of that legacy and that, that meaning you want to bring into this world. And so often we don't really know how we're going to get there yet. And so it's a great way to basically, you, what you would do is essentially close your eyes and start thinking about all those different possibilities. At this point, think of it as like an explorative thing, quite like an, like an ideation, a design thinking process. Think of it like that, but in your mind. And what this can do is you start realizing that your brain is such a creative place, right? It loves its imagination. So it will probably give you some of the biggest ideas, like things that you've never thought about, and then some things that you have thought about. And what this allows you to do is it allows you to start seeing the different options. And once you have done this visualization, you know, you've created it in your mind first. Great. Write it down. See some of those, see some of those ideas. But you know what the key is? What is the one that makes you excited? Like, what is that one that when you when you think about it, it just like, you feel it in your body. You feel that joy. You feel that sense of connection when you're like, this is really exciting. That's exactly how I started my own business. I had literally done it in a visualization. I was like, this feels so purposeful. It makes me feel very alive. And so connecting your emotion to that is just as important. And then when you have, I guess, a bit more of an idea of like, oh, yeah, this is maybe a, you know, what what I want to go down, an area I want to explore, then you start going a bit more narrow. So you know what this vision is, you know what you want it to look like. Now let's build from that. Let's see what this looks like on a day-to-day basis. You know, what are some of the activities you're doing? What do you need to do in order to record more of these? What equipment do you might need? Or who do you need to speak to? You can start understanding, okay, this is my day-to-day. This might be the process I need to go through. And you use it as a bit of like an experiment. And more than that, though, what I would say is the thing that I feel like is so powerful here is when you can have the end of the movie in mind, you know what you want to achieve, you know that impact you want to make, use that, use that as that anchor. And the my favorite thing is to say, have the end of the movie in mind and let the script write itself. Because life oh is always going to have its, you know, you never know what's coming. But if you can be flexible with your strategy and approach, but you know what you want to get to, use that as your motivation. That is that thing that it's like, you know, it is that North Star, but it feels manageable. You can get there, but it excites you. And, and in that sense, you can use it in so many ways to really bring that vision to life, really bring it. And, and the way I practice it is, you know, for something like that, Every day, five, 10 minutes, you'll feel that power, you'll feel that fire that Mm -hmm. in your everyday, you know, activities and things you're doing, you'll just have this sense of like energy to make it happen. And um, it's pretty unstoppable. I'm not going to lie. I think some people, some people have to be like, my, you need to chill out because it's like, you know, there's so many things. 
Um, but I'd rather it that way, you know, I'd rather it that. That's funny that you say that because that's, believe it or not, that's exactly how I write my books. So in my work, I, I think anyone who's ever read any of my books, there's always that one final statement in the book, which is like either the very last line or a few lines before that is bolded and really highlighted. And I, I write that statement first. So when I come up with an idea about a book to write, Unstressable, for example, hopefully coming out later this year, will end with the statement that basically says, it's not the events of life that stress you, it's the way you think about them that does, right? And the way you deal with them that does. And I think the that statement is sort of that vision when you're saying, visualize that outcome that excites you. In my mind, I want to have people convinced at the end of the book that it's not the events, it's the way you deal with them. And then I write, like you, you beautifully said, then let that script write itself. Yeah, I have my structure for the book, of course, otherwise I would end up writing 700,000 pages. Uh, but I, you know, I basically let the script write itself to get to that outcome. Yeah, so I think you raise a really great point in saying that it comes back down to when you can create it in your mind first, it's more easier to do it in reality. And, nice and imagine it, yeah. you can apply that to all your daily tasks. And I think it's, yeah, it's just like a little superpower, I think. But sadly, no one really knows how to do it. And especially, you know, the older we get, it feels like our imagination, we kind of forget how to use it. When we're young, we're so ready and alive with it but then when we get older it's like we just switch it off of like off of it so yeah i think um it's a great way to you know i do the same with my creative process as well i don't actually think we forget how to use it i think what ends up happening interestingly is that we are forced to stop being kiddish and imaginative and playful and creative and all of these are childish in a way but also feminine believe it or not and so in a world where the feminine is highly oppressed, creativity and imagination and playfulness and flow and paradoxical thinking, which in my assessment are all feminine traits, those are oppressed. They're basically, we are told, men, women, straight or gay, we're all told, don't be too playful, be serious, right? Think of life as a reality. Don't waste your time visualizing anything. Just go out there and do it because, you know, life is tough and it requires you to go out there and engage. And I, I have to say, this is probably one of the reasons why we have such a bland life for so many of us, even though we're out there doing every day and some of us are extremely successful and collecting a lot of money. It's still very bland. It's still very tasteless, if you want, because it doesn't blend any imagination within it. Well, that's it. And actually, I think that was the biggest surprise I, I had when, you know, when speaking to people is that in our eyes, they can be the most successful entrepreneurs or, or CEOs and things. But then when you actually ask them, they're not they're not feeling great in themselves. And then you ask, OK, but so what is it that you wanted in life? And the answer is always so different. But they kind of, you know, have told themselves, well, no, I need to kind of like leave that dream to a side or leave that vision I have for my future to the side and instead just do what I have to do. But I think everyone gets to a point in their life where when you aren't really following that thing, I guess, that makes you feel alive or gives you joy or peace, you start to feel quite unfulfilled in just who you are and your purpose. And that can feel quite heavy. And so I think like any point, if we get to do that, 
even if it reminds us of that play of that excitement yeah. for what life can bring us then then i think it's so worth it and sometimes it's okay. scary right because it's it's so different from what we might be doing and then you're like well do i follow that do i not but that that's a choice people have to make right is life too short that that you don't go for those dreams or are you still going to find some joy here so i think it can bring up some hard decisions for people and hard emotions but ultimately life is about going on that journey and and finding those things that just yeah make you feel alive really and it can be the smallest of things yeah i'd like to give people a couple of seconds to think about that honestly because what are those things that would make you feel alive i've been posting recently quite a lot on social media saying that life all that life wants from you is to be lived really and that time that you spend living is not wasted time and that we don't really have to be that serious coming from a a tech executive that spent most of his life running very complex businesses i don't know if that's an admission of guilt or you know that i actually i've seen it all and i will tell you absolutely with no hesitation in my voice that yeah life is supposed to be lived and a lot of people will tell me yeah but you're saying that because you made it mo yeah i agree i mean you need to make it a little bit for you to have the luxury of i want to focus more on living my life but how many of us actually have enough but are still running like crazy and and stressed and visualizing things that they don't really need in their life so i think about this a lot because i guess cuz my journey isn't like a you know normal 25 year olds it forced me to i guess ask myself like how much do i need in life and what is it that does actually make me feel good and what was interesting is after going through all of this i told myself like maya you have to give up your dream of entrepreneurship simply because that lifestyle will not serve you like i had gone into this i guess chapter in my life where my mind and body was so fragile that i did have to protect it and so i was like entrepreneurship is a no like why go into the most stressful arena right but then i realized that So for me what makes me feel most alive well kind of a few things sunsets oh my gosh i can sit and watch a sunset for ah is that true sunrises for me did you know that i had to make a conscious decision if i prefer sunrises or sunsets and i actually chose this apartment because it has sunrises not sunsets i love that and that's i also tried doing sunrises as well but i think i settled on a sunset cuz cuz of the colors for me it was the colors but then sunrise also the colors but, but sunrise comes with so much hope it's the beginning of a new thing i mean in a way sunsets are so charming they're so pretty but i don't i don't know i'm it's like okay i have another day to make a difference i like that feeling i don't know why yeah yeah mm-hmm. i love that i think yeah for me sunsets it's like it's reflection it's this mm. moment of like Oh my gosh, I'm alive again, kind of thing. Yeah. And so that's something that just gives me so much life. And then as I started following that and just doing the small things just a bit more, even if that was like just spending some time near the water, visualizing whatever it was, then I told myself like, okay, entrepreneurship is also something that does make me feel alive, but I'm not going to do it the way society tells you to. I'm not going to spend 18 hours every night just like killing myself. Mm-hmm. And so my whole entrepreneurship journey as well has been following those small things that make me feel alive. 
whether it's speaking, whether it's like coaching and just having that moment where someone goes from A to B and that visualization made such a difference to them. That is what drives who I am. And I guess like what I want to do. And I think the cool thing about that is it gives you energy rather than like draining you of it. Oh, yes. And when I meet people, it's like, they're just constantly doing things that drain them and drain them. They may enjoy it sometimes, but it's not that thing. And, and that it's just, I don't know. I think that motto for me has really helped me navigate my life in a, in a different way, I guess, but in, a, in an aligned way, I'd say. That's such a, an important observation, I would say. It's an important remark in terms of not just what you want from life, but thinking about what drains you, I think, is a very interesting one. So for most of us, you can want what you want and choose a path to it that kills you, really. Or you can choose to go through life in a way where you can still achieve what you want, perhaps a little less, perhaps a little later, but then through a, a path that, what did you say? Makes you feel alive. I like that sentence, makes you feel alive, yeah. There's one thing I'm actually thinking about at the moment, just in my life generally. I hear the word potential a lot, like, you know, <laughs> yes. oh, I'm not reaching my potential, or when I was younger, I just knew I was gonna go on to do this. And I don't know, I have a really weird relationship with potential because I remember being younger and people saying like, oh, you're going to go on to do this or you've got so much potential. And it feels like it, you internalize this type of pressure in life that I have to go on to do this, like people are expecting it. And I wonder like, is this idea of potential actually like an emotion? Because it does create a really interesting sense in me that I've kind of now tried to detach from because I don't want to think that, oh, because I'm not doing this, I'm not reaching my potential. I don't think that's, I don't know, you're then just chasing another thing, right, in life. And you get to the end of life and you're like, well, oh, no, I didn't reach it. Like, it's just this fear-based living. And so I kind of asked myself, I was like, what do I want to define potential to be like? This was literally just yesterday. And I've kind of just, yeah, I want to try and do life without thinking that and just what if it just was a blank slate, no matter what anyone else has said, and just follow that feeling rather than thinking, oh, but I could be doing that. So I don't know, I'm exploring this because I do think this idea of potential is can be dangerous, but also I feel like it's a bit of an emotion as well. It's so interesting that you bring this up. I had coffee with a friend today and we were talking exactly about that. And my view is actually very straightforward. I think we all should achieve our potential but potential for what? Because the capitalist world makes it look like potential is making more money or potential is touching more people's lives or potential is writing more books. What about your potential for living? What about your potential for joy? What about your potential for love? What about your potential for connection with your daughter? Are you missing out on those potentials? Because honestly, if I can make a million dollars tomorrow and lose my connection with my daughter, which one of the two potentials is more important, right? And yeah, we all have potential, but by the way, we all have a beautiful presence too. Like, what about my potential for enjoying the present moment without giving myself shit about the future? Like, why don't we think about those things? There is a lot out there in the world, Maya, that is 
marketing messages. You know, being a businessman for a very, a very long time, having gone and done my MBA and read tons of literature on business and management and leadership and operations management and excellence and all of that crap, right? I'm sorry to call it crap because it's such a simulated environment where we are told that what we should dedicate our life to is to serve an economic model. And then we value our achievements and success by, I don't know, who we married or what is all of that? Where is my potential to live and enjoy life? Why is no one talking about this? It's, it's crazy when you think about it. And it's that um, it's the potential to be rather than the, than the potential to do. There right? you because, go. Again, like we're, it's that thing of like we are human beings at the end of the day, not just human doings all the time. And I know, I know it's this thing where like, you know, people feel very guilty when they're not doing something. But have you just tried to just be? Because I actually, what's interesting, the potential to just be, it feels limitless. Don't you think? Like the mm. the things that you can just feel or I don't know, like think of when you're just being yeah. is is incredible. It's like a yeah. peace or a contentment or a type of happiness that yeah. I don't know, I never get from doing anything. It's just from being. And yeah. it makes me think like we haven't discovered all of that. So imagine the potential there. And it's exactly. you're right. It's um, you know, exactly applying yeah. potential to those different aspects of our life, our relationships, yeah. our connections, our connection yeah. to ourself, all of yeah. that. You remind me of one of my favorite guests ever on Slow Mo, uh, John Butler, if, if our listeners haven't had the chance to listen to that one. And John talks about silence and the limitless potential of silence. Because if you're into words or sounds or music or noise, there is a limit to how much you can inject into your ears if you want, into your mind, into your life. But then silence is limitless. It's, it's that potential for being, just blending with the world, if you want. I want to take you back to a couple of comments that you said earlier, which I cannot let go on. Sorry, but I have to bring them back up. You said we can control our thoughts, our, our feelings, and our actions. A lot of people would disagree with the idea of we can control our feelings. Can you talk a little bit about that? So something I have never really loved in in this kind of wellness space especially with like meditation and things like that is this idea that you've got to clear your mind you know just completely clear it i actually think that's pretty impossible you know as humans <laughs> we we have thoughts in our mind the problem is a lot of the time these these thoughts lead to you know negative spirals overthinking and again it's habit right we're constantly repeating those same things and and the amount of information that we're getting these days is is really overwhelming and I think the word control is a little bit harsh, but how I see it is that there are three stages. You've got emotional and mental awareness. So, okay, I am angry. Then you've got emotional and mental intelligence. I am angry because, okay, we had an argument yesterday. Then it's emotional and mental agility. I'm angry because we had an argument yesterday, but this is what I need and this is how I can change it if I need to. And the reason I think this is really interesting is because we have more power and control over our emotions and thoughts than we think. We have the choice. Do we want to feed that thought, feed that emotion more and more? Great. Like, do it. Make it bigger if you want to. But if it's something that doesn't serve us, then we've got to ask ourselves, like, 
well, how can I change this? What do I need to do? And sometimes that might be you need to write. Sometimes talk about it. Sometimes scream. There are so many different mechanisms and tools that we have to learn. And one thing I think I'm very conscious about when giving this type of advice is it's not a one size fits all. What works for my mind is not going to work for yours. And I think, you know, I find it interesting. We go to school, we learn these languages, Spanish, French, all of it. But the one language we never learn is the one of our mind and body. And I think it's the most important language. When you can start learning how your mind thinks, those patterns that you have, and then how, you know, like, why is your body getting headaches? Why are you getting hot flushes? Understanding that connection and that process, you really start to... I guess, become friends with your mind, see it in a different way. So then this word control, it's less, I don't know, we need to find a different word for it. It's more just like make friends with it and learn how you can be agile with it. Just like in business, you know, pivoting, learning, how can I move around this? How can I create something new? Same way, your mind is learning and working with you. You've just got to, yeah, learn to befriend it and then understand what it needs at certain points. And this is to say, like, I still get, you know, thoughts that can often take over me. And like, I'll be honest, I sometimes struggle with comparison and jealousy. And when the thought comes up, it's like, okay, hello, see you there. What is actually going on? Is this a bodily thing where we really need to like, you know, figure it out, understand the root cause of it? Or is it your mind playing a few tricks here? You know, your ego is getting in the way. Ask yourself, have that conversation. And often for me, do a bit of writing. Sometimes, you know, it's a bit of reading. Sometimes it's a bit of visualization. And I see that thought dissolve a bit. So I've started to learn, I guess, how to be agile with my emotions. And one more thing as well is control is actually ironic here because I always used to suppress my emotions, always. Culturally, I'm South Asian. It was like, when you cry, it's weak. Now, that control has helped me become so emotionally fearless, like fearless. If I want to cry, I will cry. And I love it. If I need to feel sad, I will feel every part of feeling sad because I'm understanding that you have to feel it to heal it. That is how we can learn to enjoy our emotions, control them and, you know, understand what impact our thoughts really make. So yeah, I think the word control is interesting. And I'm actually going to think about this because I feel like it needs another name. I love this so much, so much. I particularly love the part where you said, I can feed an emotion. I think it's never been said this exact way on slow-mo before, but it is so true, right? If I feel jealous of someone, I can feed that emotion. I can, I can sort of look for a million reasons why I should feel jealous. I, should, I can look for, a, for every behavior they've ever done. I can, or I can simply say what's there to like about them. Or I can simply say, okay, I like ice cream, right? And simply when you're thinking about ice cream, you're not thinking about that particular person. And, and you're not feeding the emotion. And I think that's a very clever way. Uh, because somehow we we find ourselves, it's almost as if we're on call. When our mind comes up with a thought, it's like we immediately have to go like, okay, 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 leave everything, let's think about that. That's, you know, very often, I swear I'm not making this up, very often my brain will come up with something and I'll go like, Becky, just just shut up, 
shut up. I don't want to hear this, right? And honestly, that's the end of the conversation. Like, Becky goes like, okay, I'm sorry I interrupted. And I'm like, yeah, fuck off. Like, I, I don't want to hear this now. I'm editing and enjoying life or like, you know, listening to music. Or Why are you talking about this now, right? And I think that kind of this dismissing that urgency that our minds bring to, a, to an emotion is, is quite something. You mentioned another thing in your personal story with so much bravery, so much courage. I have to ask you this because I think it's in a lot of people's minds. Why does life do this to us? Why would life pick a beautiful 16-year-old uh, or 15 when you said when it started and just throw this mega test on you? Why? Oh, Jasmine, I've asked this question so many times. And actually, I studied philosophy and ethics at school. And um, I believed in God a lot. And um, I watched this one interview with Stephen Fry, where he said, I don't know how God exists when, you know, 12 year olds are getting cancer. And it really, it, it planted the seed being like, how can you love life or enjoy life when this is happening to you? And I I hated life. I hated everyone in it. I, I just, there was so much bitterness because you you do feel like, why me? You know, why me? And how is this possible? I'm actually going to give two answers to this. One, I, you know, I think when it comes to people's well-being and, and these awful things that happen to people, on a collective level, I think it's how our, our bodies have evolved, sadly. Like we the lives we are living at the moment, whether it's the, the processed foods we eat or the stresses we have, it does really impact us. And I think if I think of it on a collective level, I, I don't have an answer. I don't have an answer as to why this is happening to people. And, you know, I wish it was different. I really do. Especially because of how advanced we are in like technology, AI, science, and yet we still have people with illnesses who don't have a cure like it, it baffles me but on a very personal level I've got to be honest and I don't blame myself for this I used to but not anymore is that it was the lifestyle I was living right I disease is so linked to the suppression of emotion and our mental patterns have a direct correlation to different parts of our body for me it was insecurity I was such a competitive little girl that I always needed to win. And if I didn't, I'd have feel so insecure. And that is so linked to the gut. And every single time it would just be drops in the ocean. Like I, I never expressed it. I never knew how to feel or use that jealousy. I would just always, always suppress it. And it's only when I kind of went on the journey of healing, did I learn how linked my emotions or lack of there were linked to my disease. And as soon as I told myself, Maya, like, you are safe to express how you feel. And I remember I cried for about three, four days straight. You even feel it in your symptoms, right? Because it's like your body has no other way to release it than then scream at you in pain or scream at you in disease. It got to a point where, like, I was on this route of my lifestyle, which was so damaging then my body had no idea how to wake me up, none. And we talk about burnout, we talk about things like that. But if you actually look at it, we continue living our life, not listening to our body. Our body is always talking to us in whispers, always. We have to be silent and listen, we have to. Otherwise we just surpass it 
And then we have these like, we then lead to burnout or, or disease or things like that. And for some people, they can go years and years and then it happens. For others like me, it was, you know, very quick and when I was very young. But those wake-up calls and that language with our body and that emotion, especially with chronic illness, I've got to be honest, like chronic illness is a lifestyle thing. It really, really is. And, and if you look at the UK, for example, or Western countries, the amount of chronic illness that has just, the rates are so high and we blame it on like, oh yeah, it's just inevitable. Is it? No, not at all. The foods we eat, the way we think, the lifestyles we're living, it's, it's fast. It's so fast. And we now consciously have to kind of unlearn a lot of the ways we've been living. So yeah, that is, it's a, a big question. It's something I think about a lot. But again, I don't think we have the power to necessarily like heal the world, you know, like that. But if you can start with yourself and just be that example for others, for people younger than you, older than you, start there, start there. And, and you know, let's hope that message can then spread to others. So this is probably probably the most courageous answer I have ever heard to this question, by the way, Maya. And I will answer Stephen Fry's question around how can there be a God when there is so much suffering in the world in another episode, because I, I actually think what you just said here is so profound. I don't want to take the spotlight away from it. I want to stay here for a second. There seems to me that I am talking to a very to a superhero of accountability. You're, you're a person that says, which I know is gonna upset a lot of people because a lot of people will want to say, are you blaming me for my illness? You know, I'm the victim here. And yes, I believe there are, you know, if you're born with a, or, or, with, with a, a, a deformation or an, a, a disease, or, you know, there are some diseases that are not your responsibility at all. But you're so courageous to say my illness was my lifestyle, was my emotions, or at least they contributed to it. But you're also so brave to say, and my visualization, my, my thoughts, my feelings, and my actions led me to a, a better place. That, that is incredible accountability. And I have to tell you, I wanted to say this to the world for a very long time, okay? Uh, but I never had the courage to say it like the way you said it. This is very profound. Now, I know for a fact, you know, I'll, I'll use a simpler example first before we get too emotional. But, you know, I, I throughout my years, almost until two, three years before Ali left our world, I blamed my metabolism for my overweight, okay? I just told myself, yeah, it doesn't make any sense. It seems that I'm born with a low metabolism. That's why I'm a little bit overweight. And I encourage our listeners not to go and Google my earlier photos, please. But I was, I was overweight. I was, I think, 120 kilograms or something like that. Until I started to, no, it was actually five, six years before Ali left. I started to, to, to study fitness and metabolism properly and I understood the relationship between muscle mass and metabolism and I understood this, the relationship between muscle mass and eating protein 
And at the time I chose to be vegan for a very long time, but I never took any count or accountability of my protein intake, which yes, you can be, uh, uh, you can have enough protein in your diet as a vegan, but you have to, you know, to eat a lot and very consciously in terms of your protein intake. And then eventually you have to actually work out a lot more because protein is less concentrated in vegan food. So you have to burn the calories and so on. There is a way to do it. Okay, and be very fit when you choose to be vegan. But I wasn't doing that, and I, what was I doing? I was just blaming my metabolism. But metabolism is a lifestyle, right? Eating carbs is a lifestyle. It's choices that we make that lead us to where we become. And the, the complications in my joint pain and you know back pain and stamina and, and, and fitness and so on, these were not my joint pain was not an illness. It was a result of my lifestyle choice. And I think, I think a lot of people need to start thinking about that. And I don't mean to upset anyone. And I say this again with a lot of, it's important to bring the light to the fact that there are some of us that have no choice at all. But for the majority or for a good number of us, the reason why we struggle physically specifically is because we make lifestyle choices that lead us to struggle. The biggest eye-opener of that, and I'm not ashamed to say this, was when I edited the physical stress chapter in my next book. That chapter was written by Alice, my co-author. And each of us wrote several different chapters, and then we edited each, each other's chapters and, and added to them and blended them so that they are both of our voices. When I read her chapter, I promise you, I texted her and I said, every single symptom and every single lifestyle choice that you're saying leads to an inflamed body and a stressed body, I am living through. And to take the accountability of saying that to her, but also saying it publicly in front of everyone here, I'm so driven by one billion happy that I ignored my body completely, right? And now those lifestyle choices are clearly my accountability. I visualize, as you rightly said, a body that is a lot more relaxed. I'm thankfully very blessed with a very healthy body, but I want my body to be more relaxed, less in pain. And I visualize a path there that includes less cookies with coffee in the morning because sugar is very inflammatory, right? And it's that accountability. You said it so beautifully. As I promised my leaders, there will be another guest that will bring up the Stephen Fry question on how could there be a God when there is so much suffering in the world. I'll answer that later. But I want us all to think about this. A lot of what we complain about, we're accountable for. And a lot of what we can create of our future, we can visualize. Yeah, and you know, it actually made me quite emotional when you were saying that, simply because I'm, yeah, I've got to be honest as well. We, we're very quick to put the blame on others or put the blame on the world or, you know, it is what it is. I think the way sometimes we think of, oh, like our health is our responsibility, sometimes seems like it's a bit of a chore or it seems like, oh, like here's another thing. I guess. I urge listeners to think of it as a really empowering thing Very that you empowering. can yeah. you can change in your life, you can take control of. And I'll be totally honest, 
it is confusing, right? If you think about the amount of information and videos and diets you see out there, like, you know, you go from like the keto and like only eat cheese to then go mm -hmm. plant-based. Like, there's so much information out there that that's why I, th I think the key here is go back to your body, your mind. Think about, because everyone's is different, you know, and everyone's built differently. Everyone's minds are different. What you need is different. And that's why it comes down to that language. And hey, I was a victim for so long in my life. Because if I'm honest, and I may upset people, it's easier. It's easier to take that route, to just be like, life is happening to me. Like everything's, we have nothing kind of left here. And then it got to a point where it's like, if I continue being this victim, nothing will change, nothing. The only option I had was to be like, okay, why don't we be the victor here? Why don't we take control even in the smallest of things? And you're right, it comes down to not even those big, big decisions. It's the small ones, the everyday. You know, it's like, oh yeah, I'll just have a Coke every day. It's moderation, is it? <laughs> like, mm -hmm. it's those that build up. It's the, I always say to people, it's not the tsunami that's the, the big thing. It's the drops in the ocean, the silent decisions silent moves that we're making and that we keep justifying like yeah this is fine this is good we're okay but we don't know what it's doing to us because we can't feel it in that moment and so yeah I think I genuinely think responsibility and accountability for your mind and your body is so empowering so empowering and actually I'll be honest even like dating for example I think it's the sexiest thing about anyone I meet if they tell me that, yeah, like I love taking control of my mind and body, I'm like, this is amazing. This is great. And, Did you hear that, boys? Really, Did you, know, you hear you... that? So, so when you go out <laughs> on a date with her, just remember what to say. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, literally, literally. But I just feel like you feel more powerful, you know, and, I and love more. That. I guess it's that thing. If you can realize how you can start controlling it, then then you'll start to see how you can make that real change in your life. And it's not easy. It's not easy, but it's worth it. What a superhero. My final question, Maya, with all that you've gone through, you come across since we met as a person who manages to find happiness in her world. So what is your secret to happiness? I should have thought about this before coming on here, but I just want to take a second to actually think. Take all the time you need. So... Okay, I think the thing, when I think about happiness in my life, there's two small things I want to say. One is realize, find the extraordinary in the ordinary. Find it. It's there. In the, the smallest of sunsets, a potato, literally, a banana, whatever it is, find the extraordinary in there and it will help you stop chasing this happiness externally. But the other thing I'd say is happiness for me is not a destination that I'm trying to reach. It's a, it's a manner that I can travel in. But ultimately, I think true happiness is being able to honestly say that you are willing to just live life and embrace every emotion that comes up, whether it's sadness, whether it's joy, whether it's love. Happiness is that thing where you can say, I'm okay feeling all of this. It makes me feel alive. It reminds me I'm human and that just how special it is to even be here. That to me is like what that true contentment and happiness means. You know, it's less about you see life like that and you're just, you feel it, you just feel it. Um, I think those two things are what really helps me and guides me, I'd say.
It's been a joy to host you today, little Yoda. I always pinpoint some of those conversations to my audience where I say, go back and listen to this. This has been littered with gold nuggets, littered with gold nuggets. So impressive, so young and so impressive. I can't wait to host you again, several times in between, hopefully, but host you again when you're 40 to blow my mind. Amazing, Maya. Thank you so much for being my guest. I mean, thank you. And, and genuinely, Mo, like the reason this is, you know, being such a privilege is because like I love your work and the impact that's making, you know, especially the, the little voice in your head. It's like we really do and can learn how to train the mind. And so, yeah, if this can help anyone, then let's do it. And I'm excited to, you know, continue the conversation and, and just help more people because I'm behind your mission every way. <laughs> Thank you. For all of you listening, I really don't know how to say this any other way. There is a little superhero in each and every one of us. If we take accountability for our lifestyle, for the actions and emotions and thoughts that lead us to be who we are, and then if we can visualize a place that we dream of being at and a path, step-by-step -step approach to how to get there. I think a lot of life would change. Yeah, not everything will change, but a lot of life will change. And, you know, I didn't expect our conversation today to be saying that per se, but I will say openly that I actually think this is probably one of the most valuable secrets to life. Yes. You know, there are a few things that you will never be able to control, a few things that you will never be able to change. But for the rest of your life, if you think of what you did, what you thought, and what you felt that got you to where you are right now, and then visualize where you want to be, and then start to visualize what you need to think, feel, or act like to get there, maybe you will be there. I cannot thank you enough for sharing your time with us, which allows me to host so many incredible people and uh, to learn so much in those little slow conversations. And yeah, I think if you are going to visualize a future that is filled with joy, you might as well visualize a future that is a little slower than the pace of the modern life, because it doesn't matter how much you need to do this week. You might as well slow down a little. I love you all for listening and I will see you next time.